Well, Father, we know the, the dread in our own hearts and even the pain inflicted by the terrible advance of our great enemy, death itself. And yet we know the shelter for our souls to be found in the hope we have that there is someone who can halt death right in its tracks of our Lord Jesus and his powerful word. Uh, this morning, would you open our hearts and our ears to receive his word? And would you give us the hope of the resurrection on the inside? We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, history was made before us this week. On Thursday, Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in English history, ended her reign through death. Her son, Charles, who is now the king, said this. He said, I know her loss will be deeply felt throughout the country, the realms, and the commonwealth, and by countless people around the world. Uh, she undoubtedly lived a remarkable life and was a remarkable person. But at this moment, she is entirely ordinary. Because like everyone, whether rich or poor, uh, whether you're someone of great power or someone that's a nobody, even the Queen of England has the same fate as us all, death. Uh, we're reminded in the prayer that Jerry just prayed of some stark reminders of the reality of this common condition of ours, of death. 9-11, when thousands of Americans lost their lives very suddenly. Or the flooding in Pakistan. Or just the shootings in our own city that you can read the headlines about this very week. Uh, whether it comes for us suddenly or slowly. Uh, whether we're someone that will be remembered and grieved or quickly forgotten. The advance of death, sooner or later, will come for us all. Now, if that were the end of my message this morning, that would be a real downer. <laughs> but praise be to God, there is someone that can halt the advance of death. Our Lord Jesus, as we see in this story from Luke chapter 7, and verses 11 through 17. Uh, Jesus, not just someone full of compassion and with wise words to comfort us, but with the very authority of God to stop death and even call someone back from its clutches. As we study it this morning, I hope you'll be convinced to find hope in this reality that your compassionate Lord Jesus will one day overcome death by his word. That one day you'll see Jesus put an end to death just by speaking to it. Uh, we'll see that this morning in three sections as we move through this passage. Uh, uh, one story of a time of tears that turns to a time of trembling and worshiping. Uh, first, in 11 through 13, we'll see a time to weep. Time to weep. Then in verses 14 through 15, we'll see a time to rise. Time to rise. And then finally, in 16 through 17, We'll see a time to tremble. Uh, let's begin in that first section, verses 11 through 13. A time to weep. Uh, verse 11, we're told that uh, there's a transition that's happened. Uh, so soon afterward, that's taking us back to the miracle Jesus did last week. Um, he had healed a centurion who had a seriously sick slave. 
just by uttering the words. He didn't even need to go into a room. He just said it, and it happened. Well, now Jesus and his disciples are in a different place. They've gone some distance to a tiny town called Nain. Uh, from what we know of Nain, it would not be a, a very significant place. Uh, we're, the scene we're going to see is going to happen at the city gates. It's supposedly such a small town that those gates are more ceremonial than actually some sort of security measure. Uh, just a more of a meeting place than an actual fortification to keep bad people out. And yet in this very small place, something large, uh, hugely significant is going to happen. Uh, Jesus and his disciples arrive in the midst of a funeral procession. Uh, you're probably familiar with funeral processions. Maybe you've been a part of one. Uh, certainly if you've driven on the roads enough, you've been inconvenienced by their slow, steady advance uh, as the police block off roads and allow the mourners to go by with a, a note of sobriety to their, their movement. Well, in these days, that, that was part of the mourning process, um, but it was a little, some other things are very different than the way we mourn. Um, back then, when someone died, the expectation was that, if possible, they would be buried that same day. There would be a procession of people carrying the deceased in an open casket, and uh, there was an expectation of a huge amount of emotion to be whipped up for on behalf of the grieving family. In fact, it was considered a social offense if there was not enough crying and wailing. And so there was actually a profession of being a professional mourner where you could be hired to go and cry on a family's behalf. Well, Jesus and his disciples find themselves stumbling upon just such a scene. It is a large crowd um, showing us that this is a severe sort of grief that's overtaken uh, the person that's been bereaved. The details of it explain why it's so difficult. Uh, a man who had died who's the only son of his mother. Uh, death leaves in its wake a, a trail of sorrow and grief. But that's only multiplied when the person who dies is young. Uh, there's a famous poem that has... Uh, been read at many uh, funeral and remembrance for soldiers. It's called For the Fallen, written by Lawrence Binion. The occasion for the poem was uh, in Great Britain when, uh, during World War I, uh, the first major military catastrophe awoke in, within the, the, the British public uh, the reality that a whole generation of their young men likely would not come back from the war. Listen to a few of the words. They shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Uh, profound words, and you can hear that haunting tone within them. Uh, there's something especially cruel about someone young being taken from us by that unstoppable advance of death. Uh, the details of the story tell us that this occasion was even more multiplied in grief. Uh, the woman who had lost her son was also a widow. 
Uh, that meant sometime in the past she had buried her husband, and now she was being forced to bury her son. Now, that was more significant back then than it would be today, as emotionally difficult as that it would be even for us. Uh, back in those days, in a patriarchal society, uh, a woman had no means of supporting herself. Uh, that was the job of her husband, and if her husband died, the job of her son. Uh, but for a woman to lose both her son and uh, her, her last son and her husband meant not only was she burying her boy, she was burying her future as well. This is undoubtedly a time of great grief and an appropriate time for weeping and tears. That, that's the scene that Jesus and his disciples stumble their way into. And it's a scene that reveals for us an aspect of Jesus' character that we must understand if we are to understand who he is and what we must trust him to do one day for us. Keep reading with me in verse 12. She was a widow. A considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. For the first time in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is given the title of Lord. Uh, in time, that term will be filled out to be a marker of his authority and I would argue even his divinity. But before we can understand any of that, we have to understand the compassion of Jesus. Uh, notice first, he sees this weeping widow in the midst of her suffering. And as he sees her, his insides are stirred up to compassion. Uh, the Greek word behind it has this sort of word picture to it of your insides being squeezed, feeling it in your gut, the grief of another. Uh, Jesus knows the pain of this woman. He sees it, and it, it doesn't keep him away. It actually draws him in. So many of us, when we see someone grieving, we're afraid of saying the wrong thing or doing something to even make their grief worse. So we keep our distance. And yet the distance actually multiplies the grief because it imposes the weight of isolation upon the person in their pain. But Jesus understands exactly how to apply comfort to the heart of someone who's grieving. And so he draws close. Now what Jesus does next, I do not rec recommend any of us do, even if we want to help someone in the midst of their sorrows. He tells the woman, do not weep. Now as a pastor, um, that is a really bad thing to tell most people as they're weeping. Uh, there's a reason. Because there are times where tears are appropriate. And in those times, you and everyone else is completely lacking the authority or ability to change those circumstances that make it a time for tears. Uh, just telling someone to stop the flow of water through their eyes does not do them any good. In fact, it will multiply their pain. But Jesus is different from all of us. Because Jesus has the power to halt death in its tracks. And that means this poor wailing widow, her time of tears is about to be over. Now before we move on here, we just need to note that our Lord Jesus has a set of, a set of priorities that he calls us as Christians to follow in. 
Uh, Jesus sees people in their pain, even the marginalized, that others would look past. And far from keeping his distance, he draws close to apply comfort. Uh, we Christians are also following in the ministry that our Lord has uh, undertaken in our own hearts, or to bring comfort to the grieving, no matter where we find them. Uh, whether that's someone in our own family who we know well, and who it's easy and natural to come alongside, or maybe someone in our neighborhood who we don't know well, but who's carrying a burden of grief nonetheless. As much as we're able with the resources the Lord gives us, we are to see those in the midst of their time of tears and to come alongside and provide the comfort of God as he allows us. Uh, certainly also this should call us to notice those that are on the margins of society. Every society has them. The question is, will we see them the way Jesus does? And will we do what we can to provide comfort? Now, none of us are Jesus. And so we need to see the way that he applies comfort for we'll be ready to do it ourselves. And that brings us to the second section here, verses 14 through 15. A time to rise. Time of weeping and tears gives way to a time of being risen from the dead. And uh, the action really picks up. Uh, Jesus does the first extremely surprising thing. Uh, we're told he goes up and he touches the stretcher which this dead young man is being carried on. Now that's a huge shock because the, the way the Jews of that time interpreted the law, doing such a thing undoubtedly was to make yourself ritually impure. You see, to touch death in any sense, a, a dead body, a, something a dead person had touched or was laying upon, uh, would bring upon uncleanness to the person that needed to be purified. But Jesus is not concerned about what touching death will do to him. In fact, death should be concerned what Jesus is about to do to it. Uh, Jesus steps forward, he touches that stretcher. People bearing it immediately stopped. Dr. Phil Riken says at that moment, the advance of death was halted. Jesus stopped death in its tracks. Now, what comes next, you might expect a, a miracle of this sort, that Jesus would do some sort of waving of his arms or, or use some sort of incantation to bring someone back from the clutches of death. But Luke is remarkable in the brevity of how he describes this. Uh, he says Jesus doesn't even touch the guy. He merely speaks to him. His words are recorded there in verse 14. Young man, I say to you, arise. Now I've preached at many funerals, been to even more. I've never had the urge to tell a dead person to come back to life. Uh, why? Oh, because I know my words have a limited sort of effect on the world. And they certainly can't reach down into the depths of the grave to call someone back. But Jesus is different because uh, Jesus has the very authority of God. Uh, that means when Jesus speaks, even the dead listen and obey the word of our Lord. Uh, the young man immediately responded to Jesus' call. The dead man sat up 
and began to speak. Uh, that word there for sat up uh, describes the, it's a medical term that describes how someone recovers from an illness. Uh, if you got over COVID at some point and one day you finally got out of bed, it's kind of like that. Uh, the young man recovered instantly and then he began speaking. We're not told what he said. I'd be very interested to know what he said. Was he shocked at what he saw? Why are all these people around? Did he have some sort of experience of what it's like to know that your life is over and then to have it resume? Uh, we don't know, but what we do know is that he is alive who was dead a second before, and it's all because Jesus told him to get back up. Jesus then completes his act of comfort. He, he gives the young man back to his mother. Uh, her time of tears and this widow's wailing, it now ceases because Jesus has the power to even halt death and claim one back that's been taken by it. What we have here is a flat-out miracle. Now, there are many down through the ages that have been embarrassed by accounts like this one in the Bible. They, they say, well, maybe people thought things like that back 2,000 years ago, but we know more now. We have modern medicine. We can hook people up to heart monitors and measure their oxygen levels. Uh, surely this young man, maybe he was just asleep, uh, maybe severely ill, and Jesus managed to just revive him. But let's remember that the person writing this is Dr. Luke. Uh, if anyone was qualified back in those days to uh, evaluate if someone was truly dead and get brought back to life, it would be Luke. And his book that he's written for us bears the marks of careful research. So even if he wasn't there himself, he wouldn't be easily fooled by some guy just merely being asleep for a while. No, Luke intends for us to understand this as a flat-out miracle. What sort of Lord must Jesus be? What sort of authority must he have if he can not only demand that someone recover from a sickness, but demand that death itself let, let them loose so they can walk again in the land of the living? Uh, Jesus here shows a great deal of authority, much beyond what any of us can hope to have. And this authority is what grounds us with hope, even in the prospect of our own death. Uh, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. I hope you feel welcome. Uh, you might be wondering why Christians think so often about dying. Uh, I understand that we feel like a pretty morbid lot uh, to many people that are getting to know what the Bible says and wondering about Jesus. Well, there's a reason for that, because the Bible talks a lot about death. And if you think long enough about your own life and where your life is heading, you'll realize that being prepared for your own death is the most important thing you can do in this life. Uh, for all the advances of technology we've had throughout the years that have gone by, no one has ever been able to stop the advance of death. We've been able to extend our lifespans some through medicines and nutrition. But sooner or later, death will come for each of us. I wonder, what do you do with that reality? Do you try to not think about it? Do you just laugh it off? Or if you're honest, maybe you're even a little bit fearful of it. 
Uh, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is how we can see death coming and yet not fear it as if it was our undoing. Uh, you see, the Bible tells us the reason for death and the way to make it no longer the end of our lives, but in fact the start of them. Uh, the Bible tells us that death is both a symptom and a curse. Uh, it's a symptom because it reveals our bigger problem. We all have rebelled against God and died on the inside. The Bible describes that as our sin. Uh, before a holy God who is perfect, well, has a, a character of righteousness. Us being sinners is the worst of all fates. Uh, that, that means that we can never enter God's presence with anything except an expectation of fear. And that way, death is a, a warning that we need to be prepared for the day when one day we will face the holy God that made us. But in another sense, death is also a curse. Uh, the Bible tells us that from the very beginning, the first humans died because they rebelled against God. God cursed them, and he cursed the world they inhabited, and that's why the world we know, and all of us, will one day die. If that were the end of the story, it would be bleak indeed. But the Bible also tells us that the God who made us provided a way for us to overcome death and live forever with him. That's the story of Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Uh, Jesus tasted death even though he didn't deserve it. He was a perfect man who never sinned himself. And yet he allowed himself to be overcome by death so that his death might serve as a substitute for all of us who have lived lives of sin. Uh, God accepted Jesus' sacrifice. And that's why three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, overcoming death in that moment. Now Jesus offers all of us forgiveness of our sins and even the hope that one day, though we may die, we'll rise just like him if we'll repent of our sins and put our faith in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that, that is the hope that the Bible and Christianity holds out for you, that you don't have to be fearful of death. In fact, you can know that it's the start of something the start of your life with God, a life that goes on forever. If you don't know how to do that or you have other questions, uh, I'll give you an invitation. Uh, this room you're sitting in is filled with Christians who believe this very thing and have experienced what it is to have this hope themselves. So after the service, turn to someone to your left, or your right, or in front or back of you. Ask them, how is it that I can become a Christian myself? They'd be glad to tell you. Now, for all of us that are Christians, let's recognize that we get to see Jesus do this miracle of raising people from the dead by his word each and every time we hear a testimony of someone coming to new life in Christ. Uh, next week, we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate three baptisms. Uh, three people who at one point were dead in their trespasses and sins, but by the power of Jesus and his word have been raised to a new life. Uh, I hope you'll come to church next Sunday, and I hope you'll listen to those testimonies with the intent of encouraging your heart, of the hope you have, the resurrection of Jesus. We know that Jesus still has this power because each and every one of us that comes to Christ is proof of it. And proof that one day, 
Our resurrected souls will be joined with resurrected bodies in a resurrected world under the lordship of our resurrected Jesus. Come back next week with expectation of that hope. Well, there's one final, final movement in this story, and that's in verses 16 through 17. And you might find it a little surprising because after a time to rise, it is actually a time to tremble. Verses 16 through 17. Luke tells us, fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. I don't know what your reaction would be if you were there in that moment. Um, I know initially I thought my reaction would, would be one of astonishment and joy, of clapping my hands, of jumping. Wow, what did I just see? I have to admit, on the list of reactions that I would expect in my heart, fear was not at the top of them. But if you're a careful student of the Bible, this actually shouldn't surprise you because again and again, as people encounter God throughout the Bible, there is both rejoicing and trembling. See, God is holy and just and perfect, and we are not. Uh, to be united with God is the greatest of all joys. He's the, the most beautiful of all, the, the highest of all desires for the human heart. And yet to be in his presence as a sinner is the most fearful of all things. Which is why again and again when people realize they are in some sense visited by God, either by seeing some aspect of his glory or seeing an angel he sent, oftentimes they fall down on their face and they fear overtakes them as if they themselves might die. Uh, to encounter God is to both rejoice and to tremble. Uh, the people have the right instincts at this moment. They realize they are in the presence of no mere man. Uh, that God has begun to fulfill the promises he's made of old, that he would come and visit his people. But did you notice that other line they said there? A great prophet has arisen among us. Luke, being a skilled author, is weaving together themes that, uh, if we were careful students of our Old Testament, should be coming together. Uh, last week, I, uh, we, we saw how that Gentile soldier with a seriously sick slave that Jesus healed actually was echoing the prophet Elisha and the healing of another Gentile soldier. Uh, but this week, there's another echo, but this time of Elisha's predecessor and mentor, Elijah. Uh, Elijah, you might remember that famous story where he was sent to um, a widow, didn't have enough to eat during a time of famine. Uh, he did that miracle with the flour and the, the jar of flour and oil that never ran dry, that sustained this widow and her, her only son through that famine. Uh, but what is less remembered is the story that comes right after. This is all in 1 Kings 17. Uh, after that account of this mighty miracle by Elijah that sustained them, uh, that widow was overcome by a time of wailing, and a time of tears, because her only son died. In fact, she was so overcome in her grief that she lashed out at Elijah, asking why he had brought this evil upon her house. And Elijah, the, the powerful prophet, he was frankly perplexed himself. Uh, he picked up 
the body of that dead boy, and he went up to the upper room. He laid him on the bed. He cried out to God. He said, God, why would you do this? And he threw himself on the body of this dead boy three times. And he pleaded with God, please bring him back from the dead. And then God honored the word of his mighty prophet. And he raised the boy back from the dead. And in the account, as Elijah brought the boy back, it said that he gave him back to his mother. And the exact same words are used in the Greek translation of that story as are used in this account of Jesus giving the boy back to the widow. And I want you to see the words of that widow that Elijah heard and see the connection to Jesus. 1 Kings 17, 22 through 24. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. The giving back of son is a sign that the word of the Lord resides within this mighty prophet. Uh, Most of us know that Jesus is our priest and our king. I think that most of us don't think as much about the fact that he's also our prophet. Uh, He is the one who comes to us and brings the word of God to us. As he is, in fact, the word of God incarnate, sent from heaven to us. And one day, that mighty prophet will speak words that will call the dead back to life. John chapter 5 tells us that there's a day coming. When all those in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man, and on that day, they will obey his command and come back to life. That means all of us, all of us that are Christians this morning, every one of us, whether we're rich or poor, old or young, whether we lived a life full of faith or we've been stumbling our way after Christ, skinning up our knees along the way, one day we will receive a command from Jesus. A command we'll all joyfully obey. He'll call our name and we'll come running out of that grave to a new life that'll go on forever with him. Now, brothers and sisters, that's a hope that's worth holding on to. And it's what allows us to grieve as Christians and yet not be undone by death. When we see someone we love die in Christ, it's truly a time for tears. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you are in a time of grief or sorrow of some sort. Someone who you loved has been taken from you by that advance of death. Uh, Not for a second do I want you to think that this is not a true emotion that you are feeling or that you ought to just try and stop crying. Now Jesus sees you in your tears in this moment. But one day he's going to do something to end your time of tears. Uh, One day he will stop death in its tracks finally and fully and on that day you will be reunited with those who you've lost in the Lord even though you might for a time 
have to say goodbye to another Christian. It's only really a see you later. Because one day we'll all be raised by the mighty word of Jesus. And be reunited with him forever. Brothers and sisters, this hope will keep you afloat during those times when it feels like your tears will sink you. Uh, when the weight of grief and even guilt seem too much to bear. Uh, when you remember that one day you'll hear that word of Jesus and your time of tears will cease. You can even face death. You can do it with faith. Uh, this last, even this last week, someone called me to go visit them in the hospital. Uh, they had received news that was not good. Uh, in fact, the doctors had given them paperwork, which are the sort of final arrangements that people have to make when the end very well might come suddenly. As I sat there with this brother, uh, I could tell that there was more than a little fear of what dying might bring. And yet the promises of Jesus were sweet for him. And even in our conversation, I could see his hope building, knowing that one day he'll hear those blessed words of his Savior Jesus. His Lord will tell him, arise, and he will. And so will you. So will you hold on with hope. Uh, brothers and sisters, for a time, it may seem like death is winning. Its advance moves ever forward, and one day, if the Lord tarries, it will overcome each of us. But it will not be our end, because Jesus has even the power over death. His authority extends beyond the grave, and one day, death will be stopped in its tracks forever, and we'll be called back to live with Jesus forever. And until that day, Jesus has given us a way to remember that these things are true by remembering what he did to guarantee that we would not be lost to the grave, that our sins are in fact forgiven, and we have, can have eager expectation that we will join him one day in the very courts of heaven. Let's prepare our hearts as we come to the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus. Uh, we know the bitter taste that death leaves in its wake. And so we are moved by the fact that your father would send you to live and to die. Uh, that you yourself would not shrink back from the realities of a, even a painful death. Of having your body broken and your blood shed. All for the sake of others. For sinners like us. Oh, Jesus, would you fill our hearts again with a renewed sense of awe and wonder that you would save wretched sinners like us? Would you cause our hearts to rejoice and even to tremble as we remember what a terrible price was paid and how fully you overcame the grave? Oh, Jesus, now would you help us to even consider how you are preparing us for that day of our own death as we take of the elements that will be passed. Would our hope and our confidence grow? Would we see the sting of death removed? 
Uh, We look forward to the unending fellowship with you that is already ours. Uh, Jesus, I know that we're coming to the table this morning with many varying different burdens and griefs. We know you see us. Would you help us to bring those burdens to your feet? Uh, Lead us to repent of the sins that we know about and make us aware of the ones that we don't yet know about. And Jesus, assure us of our pardon. And remind us how you've saved us together to be a holy people for your own possession. Uh, Jesus, now would you help us to do this in a way befitting of you. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen.